You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Ben Coonley. Ben, thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Ben, we're talking on May 11th in 2022, um, and I, I want to begin with, I want to talk about past work and maybe what's going on, but what's happening in your, in your studio at the moment? What are you currently engaged in exploring or, or working on? <laughs> what am I, I'm, well, I'm doing, what am I currently exploring? Right now, I'm sort of probably a year away from my next, what I hope will be my next sort of big show at um, Microscope Gallery, who's, who's been representing me for the last seven years or so. Um, I'm, I'm actually hoarding a lot of kind of antiquated uh, 3D monitors at the moment. <laughs> so hoarding, hoarding old technology is part of what I'm doing. And, you know, um, batting around different sort of ideas. I, my, my, my process tends to be really messy. It's sort of the opposite of what I would want my students to sort of use when they're putting together big bodies of work. But, and I would say for the last couple of years, it's been messier than usual, in part because the, um, the structure of my life has been messier than usual, as has everybody's. But, um, but yeah, I, I want to do a new body of work that involves work for 3D monitors. Um, that was part of a show I did two shows ago at um, Microscope, and, and I'm using these kind of um, unusually shaped Hyundai monitors to create um, these multi-channel um, stereoscopic 3D illusions, um, but still sort of hammering out <laughs> the, um, the sort of profound philosophical themes that will hopefully emerge um, once the project gets a little deeper. Well, that's exciting. That sounds like a lot to talk about. That is, I mean, the process. Sure. So you're you're hoarding old technology, and we can go pop into your past show to kind of talk about what's going on there. But that's but yeah. that's really interesting. And I also like your side. Is this is like not what you would tell your students to do, right? This is kind of the um, your 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 own process that that's exploring. Yeah. So, so so as you're hoarding all these monitors, this is for videos that you'll be making or. What, what yeah. do you imagine will happen? Yeah, I mean, most of my work um, for the last five or six years has been more based around uh, physical installation. So a lot of the work that I've made can only really be experienced in the situation of a gallery or museum setting. Um, you know, this is, this is not necessarily something I intended to do, but it's been kind of a lousy time for presenting that type of work, especially work that involves, you know, a shared equipment or anything that, you know, you have to put on your face. You um, mean like, so like headphones really, or, or, or Like 3D or glasses, glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. specifically in my case. Um, but, you know, so, so it's a funny time, you know, for, for working. Um, I also recently had done, for, for the last show I did of Microscope, had made a couple of puzzles and, sort of game operations is something that I'm trying to use more in my own work, even though I'm not much of a gamer. Um, I've, I've taught some classes about games, and I'm interested in games, and I'm interested in sort of participatory um, processes that can be built into artworks. But um, so, so right now it's sort of trying to combine this interest in puzzles a little bit more sort of tightly with my interest in, in 3D, which is a, a sort of type of technology that forces the, 
viewer to sort of create an illusion in their mind through special technologies that allow them to see differently with each of their eyes, left and right. Um, so it's a kind of um, it's a, it's a it's hard for me to go a little bit deeper than that right now because the work is still pretty um, what's the word um, undeveloped. But you know, hopefully there'll be a lot more to speak about in a few months. Sure. It sounds fascinating, though, that kind of technology allowing the viewer to see differently. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? I know it's such an abstract idea, yeah. but I, you know, I often talk to people about processes that are, that are kind of odd and, and, and you know, like, like using nanoparticles and certain blacks or golds so the, the mind is actually not seeing a color. It's being sort of tricked into something. Yeah. Um, what's happening in the technology you're talking about? Because that's, that's separating the eyes somehow and creating a, a different type of um, illusion, so to speak? Yeah, well, sort of in a fundamental way, any kind of um, 3D viewing apparatus or an apparatus that allows you to, to see illusions of depth by putting on glasses works by tricking your eyes into um, converging in spots that they wouldn't usually converge on um, and, and in ways that will allow something that's on a plane that's, say, 10 feet away from you look like it's closer or further away, you know, 6 feet or 14 feet away. Um, but, the, but the technology on a more sort of fundamental level is just separating out different video streams for your left eye and for your right eye that can be seen independently, usually in harmonious ways, but not always. Um, and it's been sort of what I think, I guess, is my sort of... Um, ultimate alchemist goal in <laughs> working with 3D is to sort of tap into the sort of um, possibilities for separating out what your left eye sees and what your right eye sees without merely creating dissonance or harmony, but, but actually creating something where you can see two things simultaneously and also um, engage with, with an idea that you couldn't otherwise engage with in real time um, by seeing uh, sort of 2D images where you're seeing one thing that your left eye and your right eye are processing at the same time. So, so that's a little weird. Um, <laughs> I actually feel like I'm not prepared to talk about this completely, um, but, but, but it's always been sort of an interest of mine to see how different artists have use this technology um, and historically, you know, using 3D glasses to separate out what the left eye sees and what the right eye sees is not exactly a new idea. It's something that's been around since the dawn of, of that technology, but I think it's still something that is underutilized. Um, and part of it is I think that when, when we do these things like making someone see one thing with their left eye and a totally different thing with their right eye, it tends to create a lot of uh, discomfort and um, sort of moving beyond sort of physical discomfort as the sort of overall impression that someone gets when they use 3D classes is kind of a goal um, in using the sort of um, way of creating harmonies between a left eye and a right eye without creating sort of literal stereo illusions is kind of the goal of this, this recent work. That's interesting. And, and, um, and I know you don't want to get into this too much because it's still in the forming stage, but that idea of, as, as you said, the kind of a a alchemy, like a, like a, a goal, yeah. a grail, is to, is, to, um, is to find that harmony, right? Or, or to use it in yeah. a different way, to, to, to create a different kind of neurological experience almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, 
like like a lot of uh, sort of avant-gardists who who came up in the 90s and early 2000s, I think creating a sort of space where ambivalence can kind of thrive um, is always sort of a goal generally. And this is a kind of really basic fundamental perceptual ambivalence that, um, that 3D technology can allow you to create where you're sort of stuck between two different ways of understanding an image. And, you know, it's, it's really such a kind of fascinating and abstracted thing to talk about, but to, to move into um, the last show you had it at Microscope Gallery, um, maybe comparing what we're talking about with um, something like from Kane, uh, Dust for MA, yeah. which was a, a stereoscopic 3D video projection, and that's, um, that's touching on, on some of the things we're talking about. Right, but in a very different way because, of course, that's a projection. You're not, you're not, you're looking at it with both eyes. But, but still, there are similar issues here because that's a that's a three D projection. Yeah, that's a three D projection. So you have to put on three D glasses to experience it. Um, and that was a piece um, that's that I made thinking about the um, sound artist Marian Amishe who who you may know, she's, she was kind of an amazing um, Yeah, I do know her, amazing artist. Uh, amazing yeah. artist. I, I remember her when she was in the biennial and in uh, and, and a room yeah. she had in the biennial that was, uh, was kind of remarkable sound room, yeah. Uh, yeah, amazing, yeah, I mean, the thing that woman. people maybe most know about, about Marianne is that she produced these kind of inner ear um, sound works where there'd be like a really loud droning sound or combinations of sounds. And then the sort of frequencies of sound waves combine inside your ear canal to produce these new sounds that are kind of produced literally inside your ear. Um, and it's a really magical kind of um, hallucinatory experience to, to, to hear some of this work when it's installed properly. And she was one of my teachers when I was an MFA student um, at Bard College in the early 2000s and was just um, a hugely inspiring presence um, in that program at the time. And so I, I made my first 3D works back then when I was a graduate student. And one time we were watching this piece I was making, which was actually a kind of a remake of a Michael Snow film called Wavelength, but I had recreated it in 3D in this different space. Um, and Marion was sort of obsessed with the dust particles that would continually enter the frame as being the sort of most exciting part of that movie. And this was sort of an accident or a byproduct of the process I was using. But she, you know, she sort of urged me to, she was like, had a very funny kind of um, uh, way of talking where she gets to like, get really excited and say, oh, yeah, you, you know, you really, you, you got to make a dust movie. And then, um, you know, years later, I bumped into her at some event and she had asked me about this dust movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to make the dust movie, I promise. And then years <laughs> went by and she died. Um, and so, and so when she died, it was, I felt like, oh, shit, you know, this, this incredible artist, this singular artist who did things that nobody else could even imagine doing, um, had recommended I make this piece. I have to sort of follow through on it, whether or not she ever gets to see it. Um, so that piece is something that was also kind of created in the corners as an accident when I was building a big um, geodesic dome for the show I had at the Whitney. Um, and um, I was in this weird old barn 
that around certain times of day would just become filled with light um, spilling in through the cracks of the barn in ways that highlighted all the dust in the air. And it, and it was sort of almost like a, a reminder that, you know, this, this piece for Marianne was way overdue. So, so, um, so I started filming the dust in between breaks and um, eventually created that piece, which is projected into a corner of a room. Um, so that it's on the floor in two adjoining walls. And it sort of shows dust coming through the walls of a, a building so that it's kind of floating up through the air and out of the ground um, in these different uh, beams that kind of intersect. And, and there's some other kinds of uh, sort of post-production tricks that make the, the natural sort of phenomenon a little bit more complicated. But, but really it's it's a pretty simple piece. It's a, it's a study of dust and um, it's a, a piece that was made as an homage um, to Marianne, who's, who's one of the artists that I think um, is, is one of the most interesting people I've ever met and one of the most interesting artists I've ever uh, sort of seen or I guess heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you shared that story because she is a fascinating artist and there's a number of things that are so interesting about that story. One, the, you know, the, the influence that a teacher can have and, and how far-reaching yeah. that can be because, um, as, as you said, what she picked out in that was was not the intention, yet she was kind of um, so passionate about it that it's, it's, it's one of those things that our teachers can do. They can, you, you know, come up with ideas that are related but are, but are in a sense almost a collaboration, right? Because it's not simply this piece would work better, Ben, if you perhaps did this. She's seeing a whole new vision, a whole new work, something entirely new that's, um, that's, that's birthed out of what you made, but, but in, in some ways was, was, of course, not your intention at all, right? I mean, I'm talking about like just the process of teaching here a little bit, which, yeah. is, um, which is so interesting in itself. Yeah, it's. Are you a teacher, Brainerd? Or do you teach as well as do this radio show? I don't. I I, I don't teach. You know, um, or, yeah. or, or 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 not 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 like that. Some online work, but I but I don't teach yeah. students directly. But I talk to an awful lot of teachers here, of course, uh, in this in this program. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I teach. I teach at Bard now in the undergraduate program, um, and it's interesting how a sort of offhand comment can end up being the most important thing you say to someone <laughs> um, or something that's, that doesn't seem like a direct response to the work can end up sort of being the, the, um, the rock that hits the pond that creates the ripple that eventually leads somewhere else. And it's also kind of scary because sometimes, you know, an offhand comment can be the thing that paralyzes or, <laughs> or, or reduces someone's confidence. But in Marianne's case, yeah, she was just a really – kind of open um, person who, um, you know, would see the world, who saw the world very differently, I think, than, than normal people. Um, and she was very generous with sort of sharing her ideas. And in this case, it was sort of like, this is a really basic thing to do, to film dust in 3D. But it did seem like what it what it was for her was a kind of interest in, in what's happening on this kind of micro level. Um, I mean, and she did things like amplifying 
um, microscopic organisms and, and recording the sounds that they make. So, so her interest in sort of translating scale was really, um, I think, powerful and, and, and inspiring. And one of the things I think that, that 3D illusions do really well is they really do create a, a, a trick where you feel um, the sort of translation of scale more intensely than you do with a 2D image. Um, so you can feel very small as a viewer in relation to a 3D image, or you can feel very large as a viewer in, in relation to a 3D image in a way that is physical, that you feel with your body in, in real time. Um, so I think that was a sort of profound moment for me to have um, an artist that I really respected sort of grant me permission to sort of riff on something that they had, had noticed. Yeah, that's fascinating um, and, and so interesting. And, and, and it seems that that's also uh, an insight into, into your process because even with what you're working on now that we talked about in the beginning of the interview, you're, you're exploring similar similar ideas about what what you just mentioned these kind of um, you know sensations that are I don't know if subliminal is the right word it, it certainly is not quite the right word for Marianne Marche but it's but it's close and in your work is is moving around something similar isn't it um, yeah I mean I, I would say that 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 I wouldn't really want to compare myself. All, all the way to Marianne. I think my work does a lot of stuff very differently and stuff that, and she, her work is so advanced and so profound <laughs> that I think, um, you know, I, I draw on that one aspect of what I think I learned from her in my work. But I mean, a lot of my work is sort of, um, is sort of messy <laughs> and, and reflective and sort of built from a sort of tradition of, sort of using video, um, what's, the, what's the way I want to say this? Um, using mostly video as a tool to do things that it, it both is expected to do, but also is um, never invited to do, and trying to sort of find um, those, those opportunities to exploit the, the parts of the medium that kind of go unexplored or, or, or underexplored. Um, is sort of the goal, but often you know there's a sort of ambivalence and, and uh, between using it for its kind of expected values or or, idea, or ways of using it and the sort of unanticipated um, and there's a sort of weird narrative element to some of the work that that seems very different from I think what Marianne's work was um, concerned with. Yeah, so I would be uncomfortable putting myself in the category of, <laughs> of her as a type of artist, mm -hmm. but I definitely was, was deeply inspired by her, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. That makes sense. Um, and I'm glad you made that distinction. Um, ben, I want to ask you one more question, a little off topic, uh, but I'm always sure. curious, what are you reading at the moment? <laughs> well, what I'm, what I'm reading right now is actually the Masha Gessen book about the Marathon Bombers from the Boston Marathon, the Brothers, um, which uh, is a really uh, sort of perfect thing to be reading right now in terms of trying to understand the long history of former Soviet republics and sort of what's going on in the world. But I think also because I'm from the Boston area, um, 
am just originally, that is, um, I'm just sort of interested in the journey of those brothers um, and sort of what what brought them to um, enact this bombing, sort of seemingly as unlikely um, people to do it. So, so it's been a really interesting read. It's not, I'm not typically a huge nonfiction reader, um, but I've really enjoyed this um, for its surprising breadth. What are you reading right now, Brainerd? Yeah. I'm reading um, Carl Over Knausgaard's uh, My Struggle. Uh, it's a, it's a, oh, wow. it's, a yeah. it, it's a crazy book. It was, you know, it was another artist mentioned it to me. It was Anna Conway who I interviewed. She said she was reading it. It was one of those books that I thought I just can't, uh, that's, that's, I, I can't read a book like that. I mean, it's like 3,500 pages, right? Each volume is like yeah. several hundred pages. I have a lot of things I want to read. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I'm on, I'm on book six, you know, that's the last book, Holy it's crap. like 1,200 pages. And, and it's remarkable and strange and beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's autobiographical. And, and now he's grappling with the stress of, of having released the first book, which he's getting sued for and everything. So, so to me, he's, he's kind of a fascinating writer because I, and I know this is a terrible bias, but I always assume that when writers write about art, you know, visual art, they don't really know what they're talking about. And, and, um, and, and that maybe is, I'm glad you you agree with that. So, so he's written. No, I don't agree with it, but I share, I share this sort of um, bias and also this sort of real world understanding that that's not, true (laughs) I understand reflexively wanting to think that but also knowing like actually that I know lots of writers who speak about visual art way better than I can you know (laughs) right of course you know it's um you know but he's written about Anselm Kiefer wrote a monograph he wrote a great article in the times about him that I read I'm kind of becoming like a total fan of his but um but I'm reading that that takes up a lot of my time and in between I'm reading uh I read a lot of Poetry by young poets, new poets, often from uh, yeah. Button Poetry, and um, and then other odd books along the way. I just you know some historic things. I just read Fear of Flying by Erica Young, which was you know about being liberated and a woman just kind of um, I don't know having having a great time, but but really powerful. So yeah, I could talk more about that if you want. But yeah, that's that's what I'm currently reading and pretty obsessed with this with this my struggle. Cool book. And, wow. And wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations on making it to volume six. <laughs> it does sort of feel like a race, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the, the person that got me involved in it, you know, I text every now and then the book six, you know, because it's, it's, it's often not the case that you're reading something that someone else is actually reading. And, and I tend to be just enthusiastic about my last book, whatever it is. So it's nice yeah. to be able to share it with someone because we, we can't often do that, right? Reading's kind of a, yeah. a solo sport. Ben, thanks so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brainerd. I hope um, you get to see the next show, and I appreciate you reaching out. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>